Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girl Bomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self care. So, to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you. And treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. David Bowie was shaking as he paced backstage at the Friars Aylesbury Club. His outfit was partly to blame. He arrived wearing nothing but a beige women's jacket over his otherwise naked torso. Stylish, yes, but the getup didn't provide a lot of warmth. David shyly asked the stage crew for a heater, but it was clear to everyone that he wasn't just cold. He was uncharacteristically quiet, almost shy. No doubt about it, David Bowie was nervous. And he had good reason. It was September 25th, 1971, and he was about to play his first full band gig in months. The Friars Aylesbury was one of the coolest venues outside of London, known for its discerning and enthusiastic crowd. Now it was half full with 400 punters who'd shelled out 50 pence to see a guy who hadn't had a hit in two years. Even worse, David had brought a new and untested group, Trevor Boulder on bass, Woody Woodmansey on drums, and Mick Ronson on lead guitar. For now, they didn't have a name. No one knew it at the time, but the Spiders from Mars were making their concert debut. David took the stage first. His androgynous attire and long, feminine hair drew gasps from the crowd. They played Space Oddity early on, in order to, as he says, get it over with as quickly as possible. It's a bold move to do his one and only hit right off the bat, but the crowd stays with him. The atmosphere feels intimate, like a living room. The songs get more up-tempo, and the momentum begins to build. Bowie can feel it. His body floods with relief, joy beaming from his face. He packs the rest of the set with songs from his recently completed album, Hunky Dory, Oh You Pretty Things, Changes, and Queen Bitch. The record isn't even out yet, but the crowd eats it up. Bowie's nerves are gone. It's working. They close with a breakneck cover of the Velvet Underground's Waiting for the Man before Bowie strides off stage, arms raised in triumph like a victorious prize fighter. He's greeted backstage by a handful of fans, including 16-year-old Chris Needs, a future rock journalist and passionate member of the local Bowie fan club. Bowie gives him a warm hello and the two get to talking. His confidence returned, David makes a declaration that falls somewhere between ludicrous boast and statement of fact. I'm going to be a huge rock star, he tells Needs. Next time you see me, I'll be totally different. Bowie makes good on his promise four months later, when he returned to the Friars Aylesbury on January 29th, 1972. Tickets are now 60 pence to see Bowie, now amusingly, if not humbly, billed as the most beautiful person in the world. The audience has doubled since last time, with many kids making the hour trek from London. Among them are Freddie Mercury and Roger Taylor, looking for inspiration for their new band, Queen. They get more than they bargained for. The lights dimmed. A proto-techno version of Ode to Joy from Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange blares from the PA system. The music fills the musty old space, building to an ecstatic, futuristic frenzy of sound and strobe lights. Out of the blinding glare, three figures appear. It's Bowie's band, glammed up in their new metallic catsuits, modeled after the gang of droogs from A Clockwork Orange. 
They launch into their opener, Hang On To Yourself, as Bowie himself struts on stage. But is it Bowie? Who is this otherworldly vision with spiky red hair and unnaturally pallid complexion? The diamond-patterned onesie and red wrestling boots had people at a loss. It was soon apparent that this wasn't David Bowie at all. It was Ziggy Stardust. It was all so new, this ambitious and audacious blend of costume, choreography, and drama, all in the context of a rock and roll show. And then, of course, there were the songs themselves, titles that become practically holy scripture to pop fans across the globe. Five Years, Suffragette City, and Starman, all heard for the very first time, live and in the flesh. The atmosphere was electric as they kicked off their slow-burning curtain closer, another new one called Rock and Roll Suicide. You're wonderful, give me your hands, Bowie pleaded at the climactic coda. The crowd raised their arms in a spontaneous display of solidarity. You're not alone, he wailed, and neither was he. Let the children boogie, he'd proclaimed, and the children responded in kind. Backstage was a madhouse as fans swarmed his dressing room. Some demanded to know where he cut his hair. Others where he got his clothes. Some just wanted to touch him, greet him, thank him. One girl was so overcome with emotion that she punched him. Chris Needs was among the crowd. Bowie spotted him right away and waved him over, planting a playful kiss on his head. Told you I'd be different, laughed Bowie. Or was it Ziggy? A star is born, proclaimed the local paper the next day. David Bowie wasn't one to trade in cliches, but the headline didn't lie. The effects of that night would ripple outward, touching on every aspect of popular culture. Not just music, but film, fashion, social and sexual mores, and the very nature of fame itself. For many, the Friars Aylesbury show was the night the 70s began. Nothing would ever be the same for rock and roll again. Nothing would ever be the same for David, either. Hello and welcome to Off the Record, the show that goes beyond the songs and into the hearts and minds of rock's greatest legends. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. This season explores the life, or rather lives, of David Bowie. Today, we're going to discuss the rise of Ziggy Stardust. Enough said, right? The messianic space alien would change David's life and millions of others forever. So turn it up. This episode's made to be played at maximum volume. David Bowie might have been English, but Ziggy Stardust was born in America. The place had mesmerized David as a boy. Now as an adult, the draw was even stronger. In many ways, the U.S. was Bowie's spiritual home, gleefully excessive, larger than life, and filled with contradictions. You could be whoever you wanted there. It was a nation of opportunity, and David was always on the lookout for those. He made his first visit to the Promised Land in January of 1971 on a PR trip. Now, in early September, he was going back to ink a new record deal with RCA. The label was home to Elvis Presley, with whom David shared a birthday. David saw himself as heir to the King of Rock's throne, as soon as the deal was finalized, he called his mother Peggy, told her he was about to be bigger than Elvis. The New Deal was the masterwork of David's new manager, Tony DeFries, a young but ruthless London entertainment clerk. Most people had one of two reactions to this aggressive but deceptively soft-spoken man. You either feared him and liked him, or feared him and didn't like him. DeFries all but worshipped Elvis Presley's manager, the self-styled Colonel Tom Parker. The former carnival barker had transformed Presley into the biggest act on the planet through a mix of audacity, vision, and a total lack of scruples. He had a favorite expression, I want everything bigger than everybody. DeFries was hell-bent on following in Colonel Tom's footsteps by making Bowie the new Elvis and making himself very, very rich. DeFries was just as flamboyant as Colonel Tom, pairing huge fur coats with an ever-present cigar. And he was just as slippery in business. This earned DeFreeze the not-so-affectionate nickname, Deep Freeze. It would take some time before David actually read the fine print of the management deal he guilelessly signed with DeFreeze, sowing the seeds of financial chaos that would plague him throughout his commercial peak. But for now, David wasn't concerned. DeFreeze had showed him a piece of paper that illustrated the fact that he was already a millionaire, technically. 
Sure, the hits were hypothetical at this point, and the money merely conceptual, but the plan was in place. All they had to do was do it. Since David was already a millionaire on paper, DeFreeze advised him to start acting like it. What is a celebrity, really? A star is simply what others perceive you to be. From now on, David would travel by limousine. A bodyguard was hired to ward off non-existent crowds. It was a classic case of fake it till you make it. As David would later recall, Tony DeFreeze had this idea that if we just told the world that I was super huge and then treated me as though I were, then something might happen. Interviews and press access were strictly limited. Not like journalists were beating down their door anyway. Unauthorized photographers were forbidden. It was a technique borrowed from the old-school Hollywood studio system, creating a Garbo-esque air of mystique. Distance, after all, breeds demand. David himself put his years of celebrity spotting to good use. He adopted a regal persona, pausing at doors and waiting for others to open them. A star can never be bothered with such trivialities. To the world at large, he was essentially a nobody, but as drummer Woody Woodmansey would later say, David would eat breakfast as a superstar. When he'd first gone to New York in early 1971, David had stayed in the Times Square Holiday Inn. But when he traveled there that September to sign his new RCA deal, he'd been booked into the Warwick, a plush midtown hotel frequented by Elvis and the Beatles. Strolling past the nearby Radio City Music Hall, David casually told all in earshot that he'd play there soon. It seemed ridiculous, but in 18 months, he would. While in New York, David visited some new friends, a motley crew of colorful actors, drag queens, and assorted speed freaks. They'd met a few weeks earlier when this band of brash New Yorkers arrived on the British shores to shock queen and country with a controversial play called Pork. It's been described somewhat uncharitably as an orgy with arty dialogue. The script had been written by Andy Warhol, called from over 200 hours of recorded phone conversations with ultra-hip factory scenesters, who also made up the cast. The plot, as much as it had one, was jam-packed with full frontal nudity, masturbation, homosexuality, onstage douching, and simulated fecal consumption, with chocolate pudding subbed in as the real thing. Though it earned a flattering review in the New York Times, the show proved too much for even the downtown scene and closed after just two weeks. When the cast arrived in England that August to stage a brief run of the production, it was like a bomb of bad taste that exploded over London. The pork performers were gleefully provocative both on stage and off. As far as they were concerned, even the local drag queens were practically nuns. To them, the British capital had an almighty stick up its rear and was in need of a good shakeup. One actress flashed her bare breasts outside the Queen Mother's residence. What's the big deal, she asked the crowd of Fleet Street reporters who'd gathered. The Queen's got them. It seemed only natural that such free-spirited attention seekers would find their way to David. In fact, they were some of the only Americans who actually knew who he was. They'd come across David's first major profile in Rolling Stone that spring. Though unfamiliar with his music, they were struck by the photos of David looking his androgynous best with his long hair and Mr. Fish dress. So when cast member Lee Black Childress came across an ad for one of David's shows, he decided to check him out. Fellow castmates Cherry Vanilla and Jane County came along for the ride. They got in for free by posing as members of the American music press, earning them prime seats down front. To their great disappointment, they found not a fellow freak, but a folky in baggy pants and a floppy hat, performing a somewhat lackluster acoustic set with Mick Ronson. Jane County later likened him to Joan Baez on Downers. Bowie, to his credit, recognized his guests and introduced them to the crowd before playing his song Andy Warhol in their honor. Cherry Vanilla showed her appreciation by standing up and flashing the crowd. Overall, their first impression of David was not great. Their disappointment was compounded when they actually met face-to-face after the show. They liked his wife Angie just fine. She was, like them, a bold and fearless American, outgoing in the extreme. But they regarded David as a drip who mostly kept to himself. His surprisingly drab hippie attire was at odds with their elaborate makeup, gaudy glitter, and sexy sleaze. Out of politeness, they invited the Bowies to catch a performance of pork the next day at the Roundhouse. To David, the show was nothing less than a revelation. Just three years earlier, British theater was subjected to a censorship board. Now these fabulously dressed New Yorkers were flouting every taboo, 
taking the underground above ground. David and Angie savored the outrageousness. Clearly, rules were a thing of the past. David and Angie invited the cast to lunch at their Haddon Hall home a few days later. Instead of David the Drip, they met David Bowie for the first time. He came out of his shell, playing the consummate host and leading the conversation towards his grandest theatrical fantasies. They'd found the kindred spirit. David's new friends would later marvel at his ability to turn his charm off and on, able to appear and disappear in a crowd at will. These factory denizens were characters in the true sense of the word. They were always on, performing for everyone, even if it was just each other. They seemed to transcend emotion and even their own humanity, becoming something bigger. They were, to use Warhol's word, superstars. To hear them tell it, David became their new pet project. We kind of took him under our wing. We all decided to help him out, Jane County would later say. You know, glam him up, make him more outrageous. These full-time artificial extroverts helped inspire David to create a new persona for himself. Little Davy Jones from Bromley had come this far as David Bowie, but who could he be next? David pondered this on his trip to New York that September, where he met up with the pork crowd on their home turf. They even brought him to the factory to say hello to their patron. Far from being one of the great artistic summits of the 70s, David Bowie's meeting with Andy Warhol was, by all accounts, pretty painful. Security at the factory had been ramped up since Warhol was nearly killed in a 1968 assassination attempt. After ringing a doorbell marked, Do Not Ring, David and company were grilled by the guards. The reception was just as chilly when he was finally introduced to Warhol himself, who was inexplicably clad in jodhpurs, high-laced boots, and a riding crop. I met this man who was the living dead, David remembered. He offered Warhol a friendly handshake. Warhol drew back. This guy's reptilian, David thought. Neither man was known for being particularly chatty, and Warhol thwarted any attempts at small talk. This was merely his socially awkward way, but David took it personally. He desperately wanted to be taken seriously by Warhol and was deeply hurt that he wasn't embraced as an artistic peer. David tried to break the ice by playing the yet-to-be-released hunky-dory track Andy Warhol in his honor. Warhol listened dispassionately before wandering away. Minutes later, one of the factory lackeys informed David that Andy hated it. The only thing that seemed to impress Warhol were David's bright yellow patent leather shoes, a gift from his friend and musical rival, Mark Bolin. Warhol was so intrigued that he grabbed his Polaroid and began photographing them obsessively, jabbering about shoe design the whole time. Before he left, David took part in one of Andy's famous screen tests, where guests are placed in front of a camera and encouraged to do whatever comes to mind. David thought back to his miming days with Lindsay Kemp and acted out his own disembowelment, ripping out his guts bit by bit. It was pretty much how he felt about the visit. Andy stood off camera, murmuring, oh, that's nice, in a sickly sing-song. David's meeting with another Warhol associate, Lou Reed, went marginally better. Lou had been one of David's ultimate rock heroes since he first got his hands on an advanced copy of The Velvet Underground's debut back in 1966. He devoured the album and even incorporated several songs into his early set, making him likely the first person in England to cover raw rockers like Waiting for the Man and White Light, White Heat. David had thought he met Reed during his previous visit to New York when he caught a Velvet show. It was only after that he realized Lou had left the band and the man he'd been showering with praise was actually his replacement, Doug Yule. Now he was sharing dinner with the real Lou Reed, but he was barely a shadow of his former self. Since leaving the Velvet Underground, Lou had effectively retired from the music world, moving back home with his parents on Long Island and taking a job as a typist at his father's accountancy firm for $40 a week. He was clearly going through a bad patch, and David found him drunk and sullen. Not even some flirtatious whispers from David could bring Lou out of his dark mood that night. The pair ended up at Max's Kansas City, the dive bar of choice for the downtown glitterati. On any given night, Debbie Harry might be your waitress, or you'd share a bathroom line with William S. Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, or Robert Rauschenberg. The walls were lined with art worth millions today, donated by poor but talented customers too hard up to pay off their bar tabs. It didn't take money to get into Max's Kansas City. It took style. One patron would remember, people looked different, but everyone looked right. 
Upstairs was a venue where the Velvet Underground had been the house band. And later, a young Bob Marley would make his New York debut, opening for an equally green Bruce Springsteen. But the back room was the inner sanctum. This was where Andy Warhol and his factory superstars held court at their round table. Dan Flavin's massive fluorescent light sculpture permanently bathed the room in a sinister but flattering blood-red glow. It looked like a hip and beautiful version of hell, where the elegant would get elegantly wasted. Lou departed the scene uncharacteristically early that night, but David was about to meet another of his heroes, the man who he'd one day describe as his twin Adam, Iggy Pop. He'd been turned on to the Detroit Livewire during his first trip to America earlier in the year and was instantly entranced by the dark and raw rock from his band, the Stooges. More than just their sound, David was fascinated by Iggy's persona. Born Jim Osterberg, this short and shy intellectual had built himself the ultimate rock and roll vehicle, an uninhibited Dionysian demon capable of unleashing a torrent of noise and destruction. His animalistic stage antics were already legendary, including, but not limited to, vomiting, nudity, self-mutilation, and inciting riots. Bowie had cited Iggy as his favorite singer in a recent British interview, but now Iggy had fallen on hard times. Drug abuse and general bad behavior forced the Stooges' record label to drop them, and the group soon split. Iggy fell deeper into heroin and bounced from crisis to crisis. ODs, van crashes, and that time he got stranded in the rough Detroit housing projects wearing a pink tutu. Long story. His worsening addiction left him barely able to function, and by the summer of 71, he was crashing at his ex-manager's New York apartment. He was there, sprawled out on the couch in an opiate haze when he got the call to come down to Max's and meet this visiting Englishman who'd spoken so highly of him in the British press. Iggy had no idea who Bowie was. Besides, he was too engrossed in the old black-and-white Jimmy Stewart movie on the TV. But after the third phone call, he begrudgingly legged it down to Max's just before closing time. The meeting changed his life, and David's too. They connected on two levels their self-created, larger-than-life performance personas, and the quiet, intelligent music nerds they masked. By dawn, they were firm friends. Over a long breakfast at the Warwick the next morning, David convinced Iggy, who was going on his third night without sleep, to come to London and sign with Tony DeFries. David returned to England inspired by his new friends and the unbridled creativity of the New York underground. He holed up in his own version of Warhol's factory, Haddon Hall, to begin assembling his own custom-made superstar, Ziggy Stardust. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. In the annals of rock and roll history, the band Arnold Corns seldom gets a mention. This is hardly surprising. They released just two singles between 1971 and 1972, both of which are mediocre at best and both of which sank like stones on the chart. But despite their total lack of commercial success and a truly horrendous name, Arnold Corns deserves recognition. Why? Because the band was the prototype for Ziggy Stardust. It all started in the spring of 1971, 
just after David returned from his very first promotional trip to the U.S. Borrowing a page from Andy Warhol's playbook, David endeavored to create his own superstar from scratch. The band would be his human canvas. David would write the songs, choose the clothes, even pick their new names. It was an inspired move. With no risk to his own career, David could experiment to his heart's content, discarding ideas that didn't work and cherry-picking the ones that did for himself. For a frontman, David recruited the handsome and charismatic Freddie Beretti, a 19-year-old budding clothing designer he knew from London's gay club scene. David rechristened him Rudy Valentino and steered him into the studio with a ragtag group of musicians he dubbed Arnold Corns, allegedly inspired by David's favorite Pink Floyd song, Arnold Lane. Freddie Beretti may have looked like Adonis in hot pants, but it quickly became apparent that he couldn't sing a note, and David ultimately handled most of the lead vocals himself. They tackled two of his new songs, Moon Age Daydream and Hang On To Yourself. Both tunes were destined for greatness as standout tracks on the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, but these early versions were hampered by sluggish tempos and meek vocals. To be blunt, the songs needed a little stardust. Arnold Corns was a commercial flop, but it was by no means a failure. It allowed David to toy with alter egos and high-concept pop. David first began talking about Ziggy Stardust during that same initial trip to the States in the winter of 1971. Fittingly, it was in Hollywood, that land of make-believe and movie stars where anything seemed possible. The idea took shape on hotel stationery and cocktail napkins. It was initially conceived as a Broadway-style production, with the score serving as a new album. For Bowie, rock and roll had become disgustingly dull. It embraced showmanship, but not true theatricality, despite all the supposed rock operas out there. Elements like clothes, set design, lights, dance, and acting, if they were attended to at all, were treated as secondary to the music. David wanted to do them all, and better than anyone. He'd recently caught a performance by Alice Cooper, the latest gender-bending shock rocker on the scene, and he was less than impressed. In fact, he was embarrassed for Alice, and all that business with an electric chair, straitjacket, and even a boa constrictor. It all seemed so... obvious. I think he's trying to be outrageous, David crowed. You can see him, poor dear, with his red eyes sticking out and his temples straining. He tries so hard. I find him very demeaning. It's very premeditated. Same with David's frenemy, Mark Bolin, who'd recently traded Tolkien-inspired folk pop for down-and-dirty leather-clad rock. He'd logged a remarkable ten weeks at number one with his back-to-back hits Hot Love and Get It On, a fact that pissed David off to no end. Bolin's effeminate public persona and outlandish retro-tinged stage getup seemed awfully familiar to him. David borrowed ideas liberally, but he didn't appreciate when ideas were borrowed from him. Back when Ziggy Stardust was barely a glimmer, David was already boasting about his plans to the press. Our new stage act will be quite outrageous, but very theatrical, he said. It's going to be costumed and choreographed, quite different to anything anyone else has tried to do before. This is going to be quite new. No one has ever seen anything like this before. It was a notion derived in part from Andy Warhol, who used his painting career to springboard into film and music. Warhol incorporated both into large-scale happenings, creating some of the first full-scale multimedia events. David wanted to go even further. His performance would become concept art. He wouldn't just exhibit a fantasy. He would inhabit that fantasy. Getting out there and just singing songs was, in a word, boring. People don't want a recital. They want a show. And David promised to deliver the full package. I'm the last person to pretend that I'm a radio, he said. I'd rather go out and be a color television set. Problem was, he just wrapped an album that didn't lend itself to such an ambitious premise whatsoever. Hunky Dory was a masterclass of songcraft, a tuneful, masterful blend of folk, blues, and Beatlesque pop, idiosyncratic yet accessible. It was destined to be a classic, but the majority of the songs didn't translate to a live setting. Even Bowie's band felt the tracks lacked a certain heft, a gravitas to get the fans on their feet. Simply put, it didn't exactly rock. So far, the standout live numbers seemed to be the one about life on Mars. Hmm. The problem was eventually solved by record label Avarice. RCA were eager to cash in on their latest investment. 
Even though Hunky Dory was more than a month away from release, they wanted more product from Bowie. So he returned to the studio to tackle a new stockpile of songs, bearing the influence of his new friends from the Stooges and the Velvet Underground. David issued a word of caution to producer Ken Scott, who'd overseen the piano-centric Hunky Dory. I don't think you'll like this next album, he told Ken. It's much more rock and roll. Sessions began at London's Trident Studios on November 8, 1971, and continued for the next two weeks. David moved fast and got bored easily. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, indeed. The boys in the band had only two or three takes to learn a new song before Bowie would declare, no, it's not working, and move on. Mick Ronson, playing his usual role of orchestrator, had a habit of finishing his instrumental arrangements in the toilet stall 10 minutes before recording was due to begin. The results were lively, fresh, and unforgettable. Though it's touted as one of the greatest concept albums of all time, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars was never conceived as such. The record's working title was Round and Round, named after a Chuck Berry cover included on an early track listing. So was a cover of Jacques Brel's Port of Amsterdam, as well as Bowie's own Velvet Goldmine and Holy Holy. All great tracks, but they don't have much to do with Ziggy and the Spiders from Mars. It Ain't Easy, which did make it on the album, was actually a leftover from the Hunky Dory dates. According to Ken Scott and members of the band, David never talked about any sort of storyline while they were in the studio. David himself would admit as much, saying he broke up the album with songs that didn't have anything to do with the story of Ziggy. Rather than any specific narrative, Ziggy was first and foremost a collection of songs that felt cohesive, just like any other good album, unified by theme more than anything else. But gradually, with some creative sequencing, a loose plot started to emerge. Aliens were one of David's enduring passions. It stretched back to childhood, when he'd sneak downstairs after bedtime to watch episodes of the BBC's Quatermass Experiment on TV. The pioneering sci-fi show became one of David's very favorites and sent his imagination into overdrive. As a boy, he was sure that aliens were watching him, studying his habits. He began to wonder if he too might be one of the light people, an alien-bred race of super people who supposedly include luminaries like Galileo, Churchill, and Isaac Newton. By the late 60s, David was contributing to a London UFO newsletter. He occasionally went spacecraft spotting on his roof, pointing a wire coat hanger at the sky for long stretches. He put a stop to this when a neighbor shouted up, jokingly asking if he got good television reception. But the subject continued to fascinate him, and it showed up frequently in his new songs. RCA execs heard an early acetate version of the record and asked the age-old question, where's the single? The album was all well and good, but to their ears, it lacked something catchy enough to scale the all-important hit parade. Never one to shirk from a challenge, David went off and wrote a song to order. Perhaps to tease the suits, it coyly references his one and only hit, Space Oddity. But Starman would surpass it in sales and reputation. It remains a perfect pop song, fusing elements of T-Rex's hot love sing-along breakdown with the Morse code guitar figure from the Supremes You Keep Me Hanging On. It showcases David's inimitable gift for melody and delivery plus Mick Ronson's rhapsodic score. Starman is also reminiscent of Judy Garland's Over the Rainbow, especially the euphoric octave leap on the chorus that sends the song into orbit. Like Rainbow for Garland, Starman would ultimately become David Bowie's signature tune. With the arrival of Starman, the previously nebulous narrative fell into place. The story centered around a visionary poet named Ziggy, who attempts to save Earth headed towards destruction only to be deified and ultimately destroyed by ego and rock and roll excess. The rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars was David's monument to the outsider, but it didn't totally come from nowhere. The Beatles had pioneered the meta idea of an act portraying a fictitious group on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The Who had made their rock opera Tommy about a young messiah, but neither had told their tale with the same level of style and total commitment as David Bowie. The Ziggy Stardust LP was an insightful comment on the rock album as an art form, while simultaneously perfecting the art form. It tackled a dazzling array of compelling themes, from the nature of fame to the apocalypse, the notion of extraterrestrial life and organized religion. The plotline suited the uncertainty of the age, 
1972, the hippie optimism of the 60s had evaporated. In his place was violent social unrest coupled with economic and ecological uncertainty. England was ravaged by a recession, leading to record-breaking unemployment and near-constant strikes. The nation's cities were still littered with bomb sites left over from the Second World War. To many, the world seemed dark and cold, a modern dystopia not far off from the world of Ziggy. Perhaps Bowie really did believe we only had five years left. I'm really just a photostat machine, he said in 1973. I pour out what has already been fed in. I merely reflect what's going on around me. But Bowie also looked inward to create his fantasy, drawing on a lifetime of passions, from Little Richard and Lou Reed to T.S. Eliot and Jacques Brel, A Clockwork Orange and Pork and the Quatermass Experiment. Blended into one humanoid form, David had crafted the perfect anti-hero for the 70s. But the record was just the start, a mere audio document of a much bigger premise. David was determined to make Ziggy Stardust a living, breathing entity. For the next 18 months, he would be Ziggy more or less constantly, sacrificing himself to give his creation life. David once claimed that the character came to him in a dream, but Ziggy's origins were a little more terrestrial than that. When composing the story of a starman who fell to Earth, David was inspired by real-life fallen stars, grandiose yet tragic figures who traveled too far down the road of excess and lost their way. The most obvious of these is Ziggy Pop, who'd become something of an obsession to Bowie over the prior year. He'd obtained footage of Iggy performing, which he watched repeatedly on a reel-to-reel projector at Haddon Hall. The images inspired him and also haunted him. On film, Iggy looked like a feral god, shirtless and held aloft by a crowd of fans. Now he could barely summon the strength to leave the couch that had become his home. The Iggy character Jim Ostenberg had created had gone haywire and nearly killed him. A real rock and roll suicide. To a lesser extent, David was also inspired by Lou Reed, the godfather of trashy urban sleaze, now living with his parents out on Long Island in a state of self-imposed exile from music. Both Lou and Iggy had become victims of the industry and their own idolatry. This was becoming alarmingly common by 1971. In just three years, Rock's ranks had been decimated by the deaths of Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison. Not to mention the abdication of Pink Floyd founder Sid Barrett, Fleetwood Mac's Peter Green, and the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson. David had seen the hazards of rock and roll at close range. During his trip to Los Angeles that February, he'd had the chance to jam with Gene Vincent, whose 1950s hit Bebopalula was part of the bedrock of rock. Though he was only 35, he looked old and sickly. His body left mangled from years of hard living. By October, just a few weeks before David entered the studio to begin work on Ziggy, he was dead. The unlikely link between down-and-out musicians and spiritual aliens can be found in the story of an early British rocker named Vince Taylor. Best known today for recording the original version of The Clash's brand new Cadillac, he'd been hailed for a brief moment as the new Elvis in Europe. But by the mid-60s, he began suffering a series of distressing mid-concert breakdowns, culminating one night when he appeared on stage in white robes and informed the crowd that he was, in fact, Jesus Christ. Vince's career was pretty much over after that. With little else to do, he wandered the Soho coffee shop scene, ranting at anyone who'd listen. It was there that he met a pre-famed David, then deep into his mod phase. They got to know each other a little, David would recall Vince spreading a crumpled map on the sidewalk outside of a crowded subway station, pointing out UFO landing sites across Europe. The guy was, to use Bowie's words, out of his gore, totally flipped, not playing with a full deck at all. But he remained in David's mind as an example of what can happen in rock and roll, midway between an idol and a cautionary tale. Madness was always compelling given the streak of mental illness that ran throughout David's family, particularly his half-brother Terry and his haunting schizophrenic visions. Vince Taylor forced David to confront both his greatest dreams of rock stardom and his deepest fears of insanity. More than any one person, it was he who inspired David's Ziggy alter ego. But what to call this new character? Many would assume that Ziggy was merely Iggy with a Z, but David would deny it. He claimed that he took the name from a tailor's shop. He'd say... I thought, well, this whole thing is going to be about clothes, so it was my own little joke. 
Whatever the case, the Astral surname was a little more straightforward. It was a nod to an offbeat American singer known as the legendary Stardust Cowboy, who'd released a charmingly bizarre country sci-fi single called I Took a Trip on a Gemini Spaceship. The song came out the same year as Space Oddity, and even on the same label. David was handed a copy by his American host during his first trip to the States. Play this, he was instructed, and you'll never be the same again. He did, and he wasn't. And Ziggy got his last name. It was the perfect fusion of old and new. Stardust evoked glamour and elegance, like the old jazz standard by Hoagie Carmichael. But also, in the literal sense, it was dust from stars, space matter. Astronomer Carl Sagan had recently popularized the notion that we're all stardust, atoms that have existed for millions of years that have been recycled through acts of cosmic creation, forming ourselves, something totally singular and unique. Ziggy Stardust is much the same, an amalgam of familiar yet disparate elements coming together to create something completely new and rare. A grand kitsch painting, David would declare. But the line between inspiration and appropriation was indeed a thin one. There were some in his circle who were less charitable about his penchant for artistic borrowing. A few members of the Warhol clan started to grow slightly weary. They noticed a few too many of their pet expressions showing up in David's lyrics or mannerisms cropping up in his stage act. Ziggy Stardust was what critic Paul Trinka would call a tribute to artifice, a play on identity, an alter ego placed on alter ego. David had turned himself from David Jones to David Bowie, who in turn became Ziggy. It all made one wonder, what's real and what's artificial? It was a question that had been in David's mind since he gushed over a guy he thought was Lou Reed. A star was whatever people thought you were. Ziggy was fake, a phony, plastic, mass-produced Warholian star. David was building a brand before it was common or cool. Everyone knows it's the clothes that make the man, or in this case, star man. For fashion help, David turned to one-time Arnold Korn's frontman, Freddie Beretti. Together, they'd stay up late into the night, fueled by barley wine, sketching out fabulous futuristic designs in the living room at Haddon Hall. David's imagination had been charged by Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, which had proved just as influential to him as Kubrick's last film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, three years before. He'd say, both of these films provoke one major theme. There's no linear line in the lives that we lead. We're not evolving, merely surviving. Moreover, the clothes were fab. David loved the look of the droogs, the androgynous teenage thugs whose crisp white outfits underscored their ruthless brutality. David wanted to take the violence of those outfits and soften them up using lurid fabrics. Under his instruction, Freddie assembled outlandish jumpsuits from cloth obtained at London's Liberty's department store and vintage furniture fabric. It was a cross between Nijinsky and Woolworths, something cobbled together from whatever was lying around, David would admit. The look was finished off with a pair of knee-length wrestling boots done up in fire engine red. David debuted the look at his 25th birthday party on January 8, 1972. Fitting start to the year. The hair came last, and it came through the unlikeliest of sources, David's mother, Peggy. Every Friday, she had her hair done by a local hairdresser named Susie Fusey, who would later become Mick Ronson's wife. David's mom passed along Susie's name to Angie, who came in one day for a spiky new do, dyed in unmissable red, white, and blue. Angie was thrilled with Susie's work and suggested she come back to Haddon Hall to see what could be done with David's shaggy locks, which she deemed too Rod Stewart-ish. Unlike the rest of him, David's hair hadn't really evolved much since his days as a folk hippie. Susie suggested that David get the chop too. David was open to the idea and began scouring magazines to find the perfect look. The end result was a blend of a few different fashion spreads. A little bit of model Christine Walton in the August issue of Vogue, and a dash of Kansai Yamamoto's shooting Harper's, which used a red kabuki lion's wig to great effect. Susie got out her razor and began slicing an elaborate feathered style, puffy in places and spiky in others, like a sci-fi space peacock. And with that, the last thread to his 60s self was snipped. Now David was a fully modern man. It would be a few weeks before he'd famously dye his locks red-hot red, but the rest of the Ziggy look was in place on January 13, 1972. 
It was the day David arrived at photographer Brian Ward's to shoot the cover for the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. They did a few studio shots with the band before Brian suggested David accompany him outside to the street. It was a cold and rainy winter night, and David was suffering from the flu, but he wanted a Brooklyn Alley scene. Grabbing a nearby guitar, they walked a few doors down to 23 Hedden Street, where David stopped and rested his foot on the stoop. They worked quickly, even sick. David was a pro. All it took was four snaps to capture one of the most iconic images in rock history. Now it was time to take the show on the road. The first Ziggy show was at the Friars Aylesbury, not far from where Kubrick had filmed the infamous subway attack scene in A Clockwork Orange. But David had some trouble with his own gang of droogs. David may have been enthusiastic about dressing up as a flamboyant androgynous alien, but his bands, not so much. When they first got a look at their new Freddy Beretti-designed outfits, their initial reaction were variants of, I'm not wearing that. I'm a musician, Mick Ronson moaned. I've got friends that are going to watch me. Rana was so horrified that he actually packed his bags and headed to the local train station, intent on quitting the band for good. Woody Woodmansey spent an hour on the platform coaxing him back to the fold. But after the rapturous response from the audience, particularly from the female audience, they quickly warmed to the idea. David would say, when they realized how many girls they could pull when they looked so outlandish, they took to it like a fish to water. They never had so many women in their lives, so they got tardier and tardier. After their warm-up gig at the Friars Aylesbury, the Ziggy Stardust tour officially kicked off on February 10th, 1972 at the Toby Jug Pub in London. It was a humble start considering the stadiums to come. 60 people milled about in front of the two-foot-high stage, Usually, it was small-time cabaret acts that performed at the Toby Jug. This was very, very different. Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars turned the suburban pub into an arena. When it was over, the crowd was left with ringing ears and an unforgettable sense of excitement over what they'd just witnessed. Ziggy was a case of small beginnings, David would recall. I remember when we had no more than 20 or 30 fans at most. They'd be down at the front, and the rest of the audience was indifferent. It feels so special. You and the audience kid yourself that you're in on this big secret. You feel kind of cool. It all gets so dissipated when you get bigger. The Toby Jug Show was the last pub gig Ziggy would ever play. The band spent the next few months crisscrossing England in cramped cars and vans, playing mostly empty small clubs and college venues. It wasn't very glamorous. They hauled their own gear and peed in pub kitchen sinks. Once, a venue lost power, and David was forced to amuse the crowd by giving an impromptu rundown of his outfit. Another time, he tried to crowd surf, as he'd seen Iggy Pop do, and he fell flat on his face. But slowly, words started to build. The audience slowly started to swell. Then, that July, there was one performance that would change everything. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Stay connected and never miss a beat with AT&T. Our reliable network covers more roads than any other carrier, ensuring you're always in the loop. Whether it's tournament upsets, buzzer beaters, or social media buzz, stay up to date. Don't let the action pass you by. Check if you're eligible for a free trial of in-car Wi-Fi at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. And keep the madness going. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars was released on June 6, 1972. 
It was a slow burn at first, selling 8,000 copies in its first week. Respectable, but hardly earth-shattering. It was an appearance on the British television program Top of the Pops that would truly herald Ziggy's arrival. The show was the Everest for every music act in the UK. Once you'd been on Top of the Pops, you were officially a star. Everyone watched it. In a pre-digital age, this was one of the few opportunities to actually see your favorite artists. Bowie had been trying to talk his way onto the show for ages, but to no avail. It was only after producers caught one of his concerts that they offered him the gig. They'd never seen anything like him. Neither had staff at the BBC studios, who assumed Bowie and the band, clad in their flamboyant attire, full makeup, and white varnished nails, were extras from the sci-fi show Doctor Who. They weren't prepared for this new kind of alien. Few people were. At 7.30 on the night of July 6th, some 15 million people got their first look at Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. For such a star-making performance, it was only fitting that Bowie performed Starman, his latest single. The Spiders mimed their parts, a common practice at the time, but David's singing was absolutely live. The first thing viewers saw was an electric blue guitar and a delicate hand strumming strange, discordant chords. Then a face appeared, thin and angular, framed with a choppy mane of crimson hair. It hardly registered as human, what with the multicolored eyes and unnaturally pale pallor. A quilted rainbow jumpsuit clung to his bony body, which gyrated in time to the music. Man, woman, or alien, this being was undeniably and disconcertingly sexy. Parents and those of a more conservative bent were not amused by the strange apparition on the tube. But the kids, and anyone who ever felt a little different at times, got it right away. This wasn't just a pop act. This was personal. I had to phone someone, so I picked on you, David sang, pointing directly into the camera lens. To millions of new fans, Bowie seemed to transcend their television sets and point directly at them. They had been chosen. If the Beatles had the Ed Sullivan show, Bowie had Top of the Pops. Everything about it was right. The right time, the right song, the right style. The next day, classrooms and playgrounds were abuzz with talk of the alien who hijacked the BBC airwaves for three and a half precious minutes. Not only did the show launch David's career in the UK, but it also jump-started an untold number of others. Future members of U2, The Smiths, Joy Division, and so many more all tuned in that night. For them, it was as meaningful as Bowie dropping the needle on a Little Richard 45 for the first time. To say he changed lives with that performance is not an understatement. He offered an escape, the promise of redemption through transformation. With Bowie's confident flamboyance, he had issued a challenge. If you want my talent, accept all of me, makeup and all. He was good enough that people did. His triumph was a triumph for everyone who ever felt like an outcast and it made him the patron saint of the weird. Though it's strange to think now, the thing that raised the most eyebrows during the broadcast wasn't the alien clothes or a feet makeup. It was a moment that occurred as the band launched into the chorus of Starman. David casually draped his arm around Mick Ronson, pulling him close so they could sing together. Viewers today wouldn't think twice about seeing such an act. But in early 70s England, such physical contact between men, especially men who looked like that, was positively shocking. Could these men in drag-adjacent outfits be a couple? David's sexuality was already a matter of national debate, a fact that amused him greatly. Months earlier, in February, he made headlines with an interview given to the English music outlet Melody Maker. Reporter Michael Watts described David as, quote, Rock's swishiest outrage, a gorgeously effeminate boy who's as camp as a row of tents. But the standout quote belongs to Bowie. I'm gay and always have been, he proclaimed, even when I was David Jones. Anticipating the controversy to come, he denied that his announcement was strictly for shock value. I'm not outrageous, he insisted. I'm David Bowie. The article triggered a press deluge. There were few, if any, openly gay musicians in England at that time. Just five years earlier, homosexuality had been illegal and punishable by jail time. Coming out in the pages of a print publication was utterly without precedent. Further confusing the British public was the fact that David had a wife and child. Angie obviously knew all about David's sexual habits and traded partners with him at will. But even she was caught off guard by the announcement telling him, you could have at least said you were bisexual. His mother, Peggy, was even more concerned. 
She called David as soon as the news broke to try to get some clarity on what she'd just read. What's happening, David? Are you changing your sex? She asked. Don't believe a word of it, Mom, he assured her. The story kicked off a widespread debate about David's sexual identity. Is he or isn't he? Even some in his personal circle couldn't tell. Was this a proud declaration of sexual independence, liberating both himself and others from the chains of outdated social mores? Or was it an easy way to garner column space? Could it be elements of both? I did it more out of bravado, he'd later say. I wanted people to be aware of me. I didn't want to live my life behind a closed door. Michael Watts, who wrote the famous article, had his own ideas. Personally, I think he was lying, Watts admitted in later years. I think he said it for effect as much as anything else. He's a master at misleading the press and creating headlines as a result. David was the son of a public relations man. His first job had been in advertising. He was certainly well-versed in the ways of promotion, and this announcement had all the hallmarks of a perfectly orchestrated media event. The years he spent on the sidelines of the pop world had not been for nothing. It had given him the perfect vantage point to study the spotlight. When it finally shone his way, he knew how to position himself for maximum shine. He was older than the 60s stars when he first tasted fame. The Beatles, the Stones, and the Who were barely out of their teens when they first achieved success. They didn't have a clue. Bowie was now 25 and much more sophisticated in the art of media manipulation. David certainly wasn't adverse to playing up his sexual ambiguity when the occasion suited him. At a gig in June at the Oxford Town Hall, he had something special in mind for his biggest crowd to date. As Mick Ronson tore through his solo to Suffragette City, David threw himself at the guitarist's feet, grabbed his rear, and began to bite his strings. Five flashes from photographer Mick Rock saved the moment for posterity. David may have been trying for a bit of Hendrix-style stagecraft, but... The pictures look somewhat more sexual, with David's face rather near to Ronson's crotch. David and DeFreeze loved the pictures so much that they ran one as a full-page advertisement in a music magazine. Though ostensibly it was a thank you to Bowie's staff and fans, it was really an advertisement for himself. But aligning oneself with a deeply oppressed group isn't the easiest way to sell more records. Ronson found it out soon after the guitar-biting shot went to press. The stunt had the unintended consequence of making life difficult for his family. Paint was thrown on their front door and even on the new car Mick had bought for them. A number of David's friends were certain that he torpedoed any chance of a career with his announcement. He no doubt faced some new resistance, particularly later on in America, where some program directors refused to play him. We don't have perverts on this show, they'd say. Even Alice Cooper had made the transition from dresses and high heels to embracing full-on gore and horror in his set. Blood and dead babies were acceptable, but a man in a dress? No way. In interviews with David's friends, words like opportunist, narcissist, and contrived surface a lot when discussing his sexual preference. It's no doubt that David identified as an outsider and was deeply attracted to the taboo underground nature of gay subcultures. Books like Kerouac's On the Road and John Retchie's seminal City of Night set his imagination alight in the early 60s with images of this twilight world that existed on the fringe of polite society. This colorful realm was so totally removed from the beige and boring existence his parents had provided for him in the suburban town of Bromley. David claimed to be bisexual as far back as his time in the Conrads as a teenager, but his description of his sexuality would vary wildly throughout his life. When David spoke to reporter Michael Watts again four years after his infamous coming out story, he denied the whole thing. Bisexual? Oh, Lord, no. Positively not. That was just a lie. I never adopted that stance. I've never done a bisexual action in my life, on stage, on record, or anywhere else. Later that same year, he told Playboy, It's true, I am bisexual, but I can't deny I have used that fact very well. I suppose it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Then, in the 80s, he would characterize his homosexual declaration as, quote, the biggest mistake I ever made, and advise fans not to believe everything they read. By the 90s, he gave perhaps his most frank and honest self-assessment, saying, I think I was always a closet heterosexual. I was physical about it, but frankly, it wasn't enjoyable. It was almost like I was testing myself. But for me, I was more magnetized by the whole gay scene. It was like another world that I really wanted to buy into. To some, it's a moot point. 
Why label an artist as unclassifiable as David Bowie? But many in the burgeoning gay rights community regarded David as a hero. It was a title that made David uneasy. He was happy to encourage people to be themselves, but he was wary of transforming himself into a socio-political cause. First and foremost, he saw himself as an artist rather than an activist. For all the personas he'd inhabit, he'd never adopt that of a radicalized street-fighting man. This disappointed some in the LGBTQ world, who felt betrayed and even used as he began to walk back his sexual declaration. But despite this complicated alliance, it's impossible to downplay the impact David had by bringing gay culture to the mainstream. Up to this point, homosexuals were in mass media as little more than punchlines or gross stereotypes. David projected strength, talent, youth, and success. To quote the designer Jean-Paul Gaultier, he gave many the courage not to hide. That went for homosexuals or anyone who deviated from the so-called norm. David himself said as much in 1972, My sexual nature is irrelevant. I'm an actor. I play roles, fragments of myself. By inhabiting Ziggy Stardust, the outlaw alien, he offered that same freedom to anyone. Life would never be the same for David again after the Top of the Pops performance. Starman entered the top 10, becoming his first bona fide hit since Space Oddity. But this was different. The Ziggy LP started flying off the shelves, and by the end of the year, practically everything he'd ever done was charting. Fans started camping out on the lawn at Haddon Hall, including a young boy, George. Shopkeepers started giving David goods on the house. Two days after the Top of the Pops broadcast, the band performed a charity show at London's Royal Festival Hall, where David was introduced as the next biggest thing to God. Concerts were selling out across the country. At one, some fans arrived in wheelchairs, only to leap up at David's entrance, as if the mere presence of Ziggy had the power to heal. David had sung about a rock star messiah. Now he was becoming one himself. He used his status to resurrect the careers of some errant friends. Upon hearing that the band Mott the Hoople were about to break up, David offered to write them a song and even play on it. The result, All the Young Dudes, was a global smash, as was the accompanying album David produced, elevating them from has-beens to glam princes. David's intervention with Iggy Pop also paid off, as the resurrected Stooges entered the studio at the end of the summer to record Raw Power. When Iggy botched the mixing, David stepped in as producer to salvage the project. He pulled off an even more remarkable trick by transforming Lou Reed, he of the moody, gloomy downtown denizens, into something of a pop star by producing the aptly named Transformer. The album included the top 20 hit Walk on the Wild Side, a track that immortalized the friends and freaks at Warhol's factory. For the smoldering sax break, Bowie hired Ronnie Ross, the London jazz player who'd given him saxophone lessons every weekend a little boy in Bromley. Ross didn't recognize the rather strange-looking man leading the session. He'd known David as 12-year-old Davy Jones. But as Ronnie was packing up to go, David sidled up to him and said, Thanks, Ron. Should I come over to your house on Saturday morning? That's when it all clicked. But David's relationship with his past wasn't always so easy. One day, as he left the taping at the BBC TV studios, one of the hosts complimented him on the laughing gnome his goofy novelty song from 1967. Oh, David replied, that's not me. Then he turned on his heels and headed to the limo waiting outside. He had places to go and new people to be. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Sean Titone. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The show is written and hosted by me, Jordan Runtog, and edited, scored, and sound designed by Tristan McNeil. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Turns out a delightfully clean home can make for a delightful start to the day. At Mrs. Myers, everything they make is inspired by the garden. With plant-derived and other thoughtfully chosen ingredients, their cleaning products smell like a dream and work like the Dickens, leaving your home sparkly clean and your to-do list tackled in no time. Goodness, there's no better feeling than that. Mrs. Myers, rooted in goodness. Visit MrsMyers.com today. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.